Glad that you guys are here with us today. Um, he's already prayed my name, but my name is Nathan. I get to be one of the pastors and elders here. Grateful to be part of this congregation. Um, if you're a visitor today, we're especially glad that you're here. We've prayed for you. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to fill it out. Drop it in the give boxes on your way out, and we'll contact you in a respectful way. Now, this week is week 11 in Galatians, so that means that, that I'll catch you up in just a minute. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 21 in this passage. In just a moment, we're going to read it aloud. And as we read it aloud, I want to invite you to pray with me that God would use our time in God's Word to speak to us today. Now, this is a very interesting passage, and there were many days this week and the weeks previous that I was like, Lord, okay, so this is coming up. What do you have to say to us through this particular part of Galatians? And I really believe that he has a good word for us as his children today. So let's read this together, starting in verse 21. It's going to be on the screen. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband." Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of, of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that it would bear forth fruit in our lives, that we would receive it as your very words, coming today to both comfort us and to confront us, to be a comfort in our pain for those that are struggling, who feel like their cups are empty today, I pray that they would be filled just in the hearing of this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that my own mind and heart needs to be renewed in that today, and so we bring ourselves today before your word and say, Lord, speak to us. We're here to hear you, and I pray all of these things for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, there's a few things that we're celebrating today. Um, first, the thing that just happened in front of us, that God would grace us with children and some through adoption that we get to dedicate this morning, which is super special. special. Um, and it's also the time of year when we celebrate lots of candy that just overflows in our houses. Many of you have pounds and pounds. But this is also Reformation Day. I'm not sure if you knew that. It's not just Halloween, but it's also Reformation Day, the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the wall and eventually that boiled down to these 
five things, that it was only God's word, it was only Christ, it was only faith, only by grace that we could be saved and only for God's glory. And so we celebrate that reality today, that trusting in what God alone can do, there's no other grounds that we would gather here today and have a reason to rejoice except that God has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And so as we turn to this passage of Scripture this morning, um, I, I want to ask you this question and ponder it for a moment. How can you tell that someone is your child? How can you tell that someone belongs to you? Now, for some of us, we got a lot, a, a strange family resemblance. People could look at my kids and say, okay, those are definitely yours. There are unique family resemblances. But ultimately, I want to ask the second question. It's this. How can you tell if someone is part of the family of faith? And that's what Paul is getting to in this passage and all the ones leading up to it. How do you know that you belong to this specific family? And this is going to illustrate, once again, as he's been illustrating throughout the entire book of Galatians, the only way that we get to be part of this family is by grace. And the background for this passage, there's come to be a dispute within God's family about how someone would get to be part of this good group of people that were blessed by God. And so you, if you can imagine in your own homeowners association, if you had two different covenants, okay, two different rules by which people are living by, and the people who were living by a certain group of rules were not very pleased with the other ones that weren't cutting their grass or the other things that happened in this little certain homeowners association. And so his audience this week is in particular those who want to be under the law again. And he's asking them this question before he goes into this unique story about Hagar and Sarah and these two sons of Abraham. He's asking them this question. Uh, tell me, you who want to be under the law, the, the old covenant, the one that, that there's something better than now, why do you want to be under the law? Have you read the law? Have you read it? Have you considered it? And so Paul's going to lay out in three parts. Uh, first, these two sons of Abraham, the two covenants of God that are going to be talked about in this passage. And then the last thing is the reality of our sonship, that we get to be God's kids. And so ultimately, this is where we're going, okay? It's going to be on the screen. There is no way to earn or accomplish God's promises. It's only by God's grace that we receive salvation and eternal life and ultimately get to be part of his good family. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. There's nothing you did to capture God's attention, and yet he loves you anyway. He knows you, and he loves you. That is the reality that Paul is going to talk about. So a few different points that he walks through. First is this to his audience. There's two sons of Abraham. And he's going to tell you the story of these two sons. Now, if you're not familiar with the history of Israel and how this all came about, maybe this would be confusing for you and for me, even who is somewhat familiar with this story. What in the world is he talking about? There's two different sons. And so I want to go back to Genesis chapter 12 and just remind you what we've talked about before, that God had given Abraham some promises. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through your seed. And so he'd given him this promise that would have to come about through his seed, through his lineage, through some of his descendants. And we get to this story Abraham has received this promise. He's waited about 10 years, and he's about tired of waiting, okay? 
and he begins pouting about waiting, and he brings this complaint in Genesis chapter 15 to God. He says, how am I going to have a kid? I mean, how's this going to work? Abram said, behold, you've been given me no offspring, and a member of my household will become my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Okay? So while Abram or Abraham is pouting, God reminds him, no, 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 I'm really going to, this isn't going to be Eleazar, option one. That's his option number one for God seeing his promise fulfilled. And God says, no, that's not the option. I'm going to do it through you. And Abraham grows weary of waiting again, and his wife grows weary, and then they come up with option number two. After 10 years of waiting, and I just want to say this, be very leery of whatever you're impatient about before I move on. Be very leery about whatever it is that you're impatient about. If you're impatient with God's work, the result of which will sometime lead to your own self-reliance and striving, and that's what happens in this place. Genesis 16, it's going to be on the screen. So Sarai, Abram's wife, who's born him no children, she has this female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah says to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Big mistake. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, his wife, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, They look on each other. All this strife enters into the scene. After God's promise to Abram, he's looking at it going, okay, how's this going to happen? I don't have any offspring. And then his wife is looking at the same problem. She's got us. I have a solution. She introduces him to uh, to her slave, and then comes Ishmael. Firstborn son, but not the son of promise, which is what Paul is saying in Galatians. You guys still with me? I'm just going to pause for a minute because there's a lot of information. We're all still in the room. Here we are. My voice is still talking. Ishmael is born. And in this moment, it leads to uh, a really... Oh, I lost my place. Sorry. Ishmael is born. There's contempt between these two wives. One eventually gets kicked out because Abram is like, I guess you got to be... I don't know. What am I going to do? And they get harsh with each other, and one leaves. And I want to make a few observations about these two sons before I move on to the two covenants that they represent. I already said this, but impatience with God's promise usually leads to bad things in us. If we're patient with God's promise, it can lead us to prayer and hopefulness and longing for deliverance. Uh, When God gives us a promise for those of us who believe, the hope of heaven, the promise of eternal life, all of these things are things that we would naturally become impatient with, okay? But the way that we get at those things are really, really important, and which I think is part of why Paul is bringing up this illustration of these two sons. His impatience with the promise of God leads to a willful self-reliance that came according to the flesh. That's how he describes this first son. They got a son, but it wasn't according to God's promise. It was according to their own work. They devised a plan in order to accomplish God's work. That doesn't mean that a plan is bad, guys. Okay, God loves a plan too. He just doesn't love a plan that isn't surrendered to his. 
And it's really important that we see that tension in this place because Paul's looking at a group of people who've been promised God's favor and they're not maybe feeling it, maybe due to persecution or other things, and they're beginning to wonder, how can we get at this? And they get this good suggestion. I put good in air quotes there because the Judaizers are saying, this is how you really get God's favor. You start practicing all these things. And then the second son, he impatience and self-reliance in contrast to this other son who's born of the Spirit, who's born because of a promise. In other words, only God's words, the promise, could accomplish this specific birth. That doesn't mean that Abram and Sarah didn't do the things necessary to, to make a child. It means that the only way that it was possible was that God spoke it into being. And he's born not under this slave, but under this freedom. And he's born of this free woman through promise. Ultimately, it would be the most unlikely means that God would accomplish his purposes, which is how God likes to do things. It's really uh, a, just a thread throughout all of history that God likes to take impossible things and unlikely things, and he makes something really beautiful and profound with it. So why is it impossible? I just want to look at a few reasons. First of all, lack of success from all the previous years before uh, Sarah gets to be 90 and Abram gets to be 100. So obviously they're like, I guess we're not going to have a kid. Genesis 17, he's 99, Sarah is 90, and the Lord comes to him and says, nope, it's not going to be Ishmael, it's going to be your own kid through Sarah. So two sons, one is a supernatural gift that's going to come within a year, and that leads this to two mothers, one of childbearing age, one not of childbearing age. She wasn't able to get pregnant, and so they were going to need some type of miracle, and that's what God wanted to give them in order to bring about his promise. So before I move on to what these two mothers and the two covenants that, that Paul is saying they represent, I just want to once again say, beware of your impatience with God. Beware of your own willful self-reliance when it comes to trying to accomplish what you believe to be God's plans outside of God's way. So patient, longing for God and his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth is not to be pursued by us making a path towards it. It's to be received by trusting in God in patient, prayerful, longing. Patience will usually lead to willful self-reliance. Patience and prayer leads to exalting God. And so Charles Spurgeon, he, he had this test of uh, any type of heresy, okay? He said, look, you can run a heresy through this test. Nine times out of ten, it's going to weed out all the heresies. And he said this, you can ask this one question of any doctrine, and this is the question, does it exalt God or does it exalt man? He argues that every faulty doctrine has some sort of element of making much of mankind. And everything that would make much of God, it doesn't necessarily mean it's God's, but that's the first test of something that's not God's word. So you should run it through those tests. Even the most uh, new babes in Christ could run that test and say, does this exalt Christ and his work or does the end result in exalting me? So Paul calls to memory these stories in the midst of this trial of faith. He's saying, okay, you got one doctrine and another doctrine, and he calls to memory these two sons, one born of the flesh, one due to the promise that God made good on, which leads to the next observation 
that Paul makes, the similarity of these two sons and their corresponding mothers to two covenants of God that he's already laid out in the previous chapters. Look at verse 24. I think it's going to be on the screen. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, the next thing in this passage could be confusing. It's this, that these two sons and two mothers are similar to these two covenants of God. Now, he uses the word allegorical, and I want to be really careful here because there's something that we could observe about it, but this happened historically. Like Abram, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, they're all historical people. This happened within God's narrative of telling the story of time. It happened. Now, he's looking at something that historically happened and saying, there's some parallels to this family conflict that happened back in Genesis to what's happening within the church today. There's two ideas and two covenants that are being battled over. That's the way he uses allegory. It's not like a hypothetical story. He's saying this historical story means something more. And the way that it means something more is these two covenants. So the first one is Hagar. He's saying this is the covenant of Moses. Mount Sinai is the place where the law came down. Okay? So when God provides the law, it's a good gift. It's a tutor that would eventually lead us to Christ. And God shows us his righteousness through it, but it never gives us the ability to fulfill God's righteousness. So these children that are still pursuing the law of Moses and all of these Jewish uh, cultural things are are like the law of Moses. They, They were never able to fulfill God's righteousness. It was a beautiful picture of things to come. Like I talked about last week in Colossians, it was a shadow of the reality of Christ, and there are people that are clinging to this shadow. And he's saying it corresponds to present Jerusalem in slavery with their children. What in the world does that mean? It means this. Jerusalem and the people around there had become preoccupied with the shadow again. They were making much of the things that they could do. Even though they had received Christ and salvation, they were saying, okay, now let's, let's keep on practicing these things that were a shadow of the things to come. And he's saying, this Jerusalem, this bastion of their religious memory and their hope, this is where they would travel for all their significant religious dates. They're all going there, and he's pointing out, look, this is missing the reality of Christ coming. There's no comparison between the two. So the application for us today is there's so many things that we look at that are just a parameter, a framework for the reality of Christ. And if we look at the framework, we're missing the art of what God's done, specifically in this second covenant, the covenant of God's grace, freely given through Christ, not based on our behavior, our ability to live according to God's rule, but because God is giving you life according to his grace. He lived the life we couldn't live. And he gives both of these covenants for his glory and for our good, the covenant of Moses from Mount Sinai, a glorious shadow of the reality of Christ. And there's ways that he's arguing here that you can be obsessed with the stuff around Jesus and miss the person of Jesus. Our homes can be like a catalog of Lifeway, you know, and still miss the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
he describes this spiritual lineage as something that's supernatural. Look at verse 26. This, this is so beautiful. He's saying, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she's our mother. And what kind of mother is she? Verse 27, rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear baby forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Rejoice, O barren one. In other words, there's going to be more children of God's word and promise than ever could be accomplished by our own strength. Now, He's quoting from Isaiah in a period of decline for Israel. They're looking forward to the hope of where they're about to be. They're about to be in captivity. He's saying, there's going to be a day, though, where there's going to break forth these barren voices where they're saying, and all the places that were desolate, God's going to bring forth life. Now, side note. Here's a, a, just a glorious beauty of God's word and his grace throughout history. He loves to bring forth life in the most unlikely places. Miraculous, supernatural births. Born from barrenness. Born from desolation. He loves the story of the desolate woman. Over and over and over, he's saying, like, this is how I like to work. I like to take the unlikely spaces and bring about life. And there's a parallel for us in our spiritual life. Just to recount this. Number one, Isaac, born of Sarah and Abraham when they're 90, 100, give or take. Okay? Super surprising, right? <laughs> Guess what? Her, like, telling all of her cousins and other people around her, I've got good news. They probably thought she was nuts. Joseph, born to Rachel and Jacob after years of infertility. Sam, born to Hannah when she's crying out like a drunk lady in the temple, saying, Lord, give me a baby, please. John the Baptist, born to Elizabeth in her old age. And it's not, it's not that God favors these women more. It's just that there's so much more potential for God to show off his ability and might through the places where it felt like it was desolate and barren. So if, before I move on, if you're struggling with infertility today, I want you to know that God sees you. He knows you. He delights to work in the most unexpected places. He delights to work and bring forth his kingdom in so many different ways. One of the babies that we got to dedicate this morning, babies, children, I mean, they're all like babies to me is an adopted baby. I had permission to share this story. Not just any adoption, an embryo adoption, which means that before she existed in her mother's womb, she had been frozen for about five years, just waiting. There's about 700,000 babies that are frozen right now, just waiting for somebody to take them in and adopt them. And this family adopted this baby as their own, and we ought to dedicate her today. Isn't that a beautiful story? That God would take something like that and show off his power and strength and say, this one's mine, and give them as a gift to a family. And there's all kinds of spiritual parallels here um, because every person in this room, if you've been born again, you're just as unlikely of a spiritual birth. Every single one of you. Just an unlikely born again. And God likes to do that so much that he said, hey, there's going to be more 
that come from these cries of desolate and barren mothers. That's what this new birth is going to be like. There's going to be more children of promise than could have ever been accomplished on our own. There's so many unlikely spiritual births. My own, everyone who knows Christ knows their own story was surprising to them. They know that they walked into this maybe rebellious and God somehow softened their heart. They were putting their hand up to God and his word and his work and somehow God said, no, no, you're my kid. (laughs) And he softened them to the reality of his grace. For some of us who've been raised and just were really good at being good, God did another miraculous work. He showed you that you weren't good. (laughs) He showed you that it was never going to be enough, and he revealed that to you because of his kindness and because he likes to do things that are a little bit unexpected, just like Isaac, just like Joseph, just like Samuel, just like Jesus, born of a virgin. He brings things into this world by his power and for his glory. And so... For us today that feel like our hearts are some desolate, barren place, I just want to speak this over you. If you came into this room feeling like, I am like a closed womb. There's no life that's come through me spiritually in such a long time. God loves to bring forth this cry from the desolate and barren places. For everyone who's spiritually alive, we became those kinds of children because he likes to do this work. He loves it. We get to boast in our inability to bring things about because we know that God loves to work in our own inability. We get to boast in our own limitations because that is the property of Christ. That's the ground that's always fertile to him even when we could not make it yield. So look at verse 28. Now you brothers are like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, I love that he doesn't say, now there's two kind of kids in this room. (laughs) He just says, let me just tell you all, if you're hearing my words, you're like Isaac, children of promise, true sons. And I want to make a couple observations because I would be, uh, uh, it would be a missed opportunity to point out what happens after he calls them children of promise. We are like Isaac, true sons, more than what humans could produce on their own. Unlikely because of our rebellion or our religion. Either way, we're unlikely children of God. And as a child of promise, there's two things he points out here. First, from the moment Isaac was born, he had an enemy. Did you guys know that? Like from the day he was born, Ishmael's about 13, 14 years old. And he's like, I don't like this kid. He's a threat to me. He did not like him. And in the same way, he says, we have people from the very start who are after us. Now, particularly in this passage, John Stott said, it's not those outside of the church, but most of the time it's those within that don't want to have anything to do with what God is doing in our life. And that's the case in this passage. It's this place of persecution. There were people who were like, I don't like all this freedom. I need you to do what I felt obligated to do for my whole life, okay? Everyone who has obligations, they want to export them to everyone else. Have you ever noticed that? We're not okay with our own expectations. We need other people to have them too. It's not enough that we feel them. We need other people to feel the weight of our own expectations. 
But there's all kinds of persecution. That's the way in the church. But everywhere this has been the case, and it's in the context of persecution that God usually provides the most growth. I love this book, The Insanity of God. Don't, don't be offended by the name of it. It's about the persecuted church in the world. And he made this observation at the very beginning. He said, I had always assumed that persecution was abnormal, exceptional, unusual, out of the ordinary. In my mind, persecution was something to avoid. It was a problem, a setback, a barrier. I was captivated by the thought, what if persecution is the normal expected situation for a believer? And what if... Persecution is, in fact, soil in which faith can grow. What if persecution can be, in fact, good soil? And I began to wonder about what that might mean for the church in America. And I began to wonder what it might mean for the potential church in Somalia. This is written from a missionary's perspective, but I think that is a good thing for us to ponder. What might that mean for us in the most religious state in the Union? That persecution is, is one of the fertilizers to God's growth in the church. First, I don't want to just say that none of us are experiencing persecution. You definitely have an enemy, if not a physical one, a spiritual one, that wants to do everything he can to squash your faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to squash your ability to say yes, Lord, to all of his promises. He wants to do that. And some of you maybe even have like physical persecution, a workplace that's hostile towards the gospel. But very few of you have been shot at recently because of your faith, you know? And I just want us to be aware that there is persecution that's existed and it's existing all around the world. And that's not something that we're free of. It's something we need to be aware of that might lack in our own soil that God's planting the gospel. There's no barriers for us to just... In fact, there's like social uh, uh, benefits to being a Christian in the South, or at least in name. But following Christ when you sincerely want to surrender your life to him, it will cost you something. It will. The second thing about these children of promise is that they have an inheritance. Now, the, the container for this word of good news that we have an inheritance is within the context of saying those that are slaves do not have an inheritance. Now, there's good news to that and there's bad news. First, the bad news. Everyone who does not possess this promise, you're not pursuing God based on what he's done for you, but pursuing him based on what you could do for him. That means that you're missing out on something, not just now, but even in the future. There's an inheritance that belongs to those who are of faith that does not belong to you. So receive this as a warning. In this passage, he's saying there's, there are two sons here, and this slave son is still trying to make their own way in self-will and reliance and impatience, there's not an inheritance for them, or at least it's not the same. It's not the same as those who come to God based on faith, based on his promise of what he's done for us. And so we come because of what Christ has done for us, not because of what we could do for him, which is good news every day of the week, no matter how many times I say it. Ephesians chapter 1 says it this way, in him we have obtained, that's present tense for everyone who believes, and inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In other words, we get to be the trophies of God's grace. We get to be the 
things that, we, that God holds up and says, mine, look what I did in the obsolete, barren places of this person's soul. I redeemed them and rescued him. And then it says this, in him, you also, when you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, in other words... Everyone who's believing today, your inheritance is yours. And you've been given a seal, this promise of faith, the Holy Spirit who's regularly crying out, Abba, Father, in your heart, saying, I belong to God. He is my dad. And that is imperishable. It's indestructible. It's full of glory. And it grants us the promise of eternal life beginning now, life with God. It doesn't start in the future. It begins now when we receive this seal of his promise. So today, we've been given the greatest gift of all time. We can laugh. We can have joy. We can enjoy one another's company because the thing that we could not inherit on our own effort has been given to us freely. He just left it up to our Father, and he said, it's yours. So, in conclusion, trust God's promise with patience and with hope. And with that in mind, I want to read Isaiah 40, 31. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary They shall walk and not faint. I'm going to read that verse again. I just want us to receive it. If you've received this promised seal of your inheritance in the future, hear the Holy Spirit through these words speaking over you. If you wait, if you're patient, I'll give you all the strength you need to endure. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is God's word for us. Father, I pray that you would seal it in our hearts today, that we would come to your table rejoicing and glad because of this good news, that we get to be your kids, not because of something we did, but because of something you've done for us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.